Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. You've seen the reports this morning. I'm sure many of you have. Let me read it to you if you haven't. According to people with knowledge of the talks, executives of WeWork and its largest investor, SoftBank, discussing whether to shelve the IPO plans. They're not discussing it with Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan Chase, right? Discussing it between themselves oh, at the really? moment, I'll reportedly. Yeah, Let's bring reportedly. in David Kirkpatrick, shall we? Founder and CEO of Teconomy, and I'm sure many of you have read his book, The Facebook yeah, Effect. Okay. David, it's great to have you with us. Just put Maybe. into... To context, what is happening here, some perspective around this company and the controversy surrounding it as they try and go public. Well, I would say the biggest picture context is that the we company or we work is not a tech company, but partly because of its backing from SoftBank, which is basically trying to turn everything into tech and profit massively with their hundred plus billion dollar funds they keep raising. Uh, they've, they've somewhat deluded the world into thinking that pretty much any company that's using an app or, or some kind of tech in order to transform an industry deserves the same kind of valuation as Facebook. And that's ridiculous. So they came to the market last time in the private funding round, the last funding round and got $2 billion of investment from SoftBank at a valuation of $47 billion. Are we saying that SoftBank has completely distorted private markets? I would say, yes, it has. I think that's a very good general statement. I mean, I think Uber is another consequence of this. And I look at what's happened since Uber's IPO. It's, it's very related. So what happens next? with this as far as you see things. Well, the interesting thing about the WE IPO is this thing, the contingent loan, if they have to raise three billion or else they don't get all this other billions from Wall Street banks. So it's $6 billion alone so, contingent on raising three. So it could be that they will just lower the uh, you know valuation as far as they can so they still can raise three billion because they basically have to have more cash to keep expanding because it's a shell game in a way. Chapter six of the Facebook effect, page 128. <laughs> becoming <laughs> Only a, Tom, thank you Becoming Tom. a company. Yes. Is this any way to becoming a company? No, it isn't. But I will say, since you mentioned my book about Facebook, Facebook did to some degree set in motion the forces that we are seeing today. In what way? Well, primarily because of the absolute control that Zuckerberg <clears throat> obtained and, and the idea after that that every single tech, quote-unquote, tech founder ought to have complete and total control, which Adam Newman took to an absurd Okay, extreme. but in the last week, or Mr. Newman, you know, well, who wanted to do the tabloids, the social, the whole thing, you know, the whole, he's like Pharaoh. He's out there doing the, you know, Pharaoh. the society thing. Yeah, John Pharaoh is doing the society oh, thing You said he's like Pharaoh night. in the Egyptian No, he's like Pharaoh here, not Ronan Pharaoh, John Pharaoh. Oh, I meant the Stay Pharaoh me, in, in, in Cairo. Is Stay back. with me. Okay. okay, Adam Newman's been invisible the last 10 days. Right. That's baloney. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on. Well, wouldn't, if you were a... Basically, a scam artist, wouldn't you hide when people discovered you? I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I'm afraid he's he, he the, the variety of things that he has done at that company. It, it's almost too many to list. Does this break the arrogance of Silicon Valley as a general statement? The arrogance of Silicon Valley is being broken in real time already. And I think Facebook contributed again to that. They've made so many near criminal errors. Public markets will forgive governance issues if the business model is good. So let's talk about the business model, long-term lease obligations, short-term agreements with customers. You use the word scam. 
Just put some meat on those bones. Well, I mean, it's I, you know, scam is a strong word. I don't want to get sued it's a very by somebody. Strong but, word. but basically, I think it's amazing that J. That J. B. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs would back this company. I think it makes them really culpable and is suspect. They they should be shamed for this. But Com I mean, look, to, to, what to, to go what, public what at sense, a time David? when we're possibly about to go into a downturn, which is the absolute worst time for real estate, and all these little companies that occupy WeWorks are going to basically be, you know. Many of them out of funding. That's exactly the wrong time to go public. David, when you say culpable, do you mean reputationally? Yes. Morally? I mean, look, we're in a time when the smallest foible in somebody's behavior causes them to lose their job, you know, be shamed. These are companies that are doing something I think that is unconscionable. They should not have backed this company at this kind of valuation. They shouldn't be trying to convince investors to throw their money away. That is, that's immoral. Well, SoftBank is going for Vision 2. The Vision... Two fund, the Vision yeah. Fund Two. I'm not I saying they're, they're immoral. They're, I think they're just opportunistic. I think it's Wall Street. Is it, their accounting transparent? Is no. Does, do we know SoftBank's true accounting? I doubt it. I mean, I'm not an expert okay. at SoftBank's accounting, but uh, I doubt it. We're we're out of time. You've coined something new here. Neil emails in and says, "I have to call him Pharaoh John <laughs> from now on." <laughs> Thank you. You know, is that my new name? It's like King Tut, except it's King Tot. Spelt very differently. <laughs> oh, it is really. <laughs> Which you'll want to Oh, there you go. There's a PH on that. <laughs> oh, did you not realize? I didn't realize that. You know. David, great to see you. It's great to be here. Thanks. Some controversial comments there. David, David thank you so much. You know, I really look forward to speaking to you along the way on this as well. Potentially the most interesting negative 0.01% move I've ever seen on the S&P 500. The worst performing names were some of the best performing names on the day. The best performing names of 2019 were some of the worst. And it's left some people asking whether this is the beginning of a rotation, not just in equities, but in the bond market too. One big question for bonds right now. Is it the beginning of the reflation trade, the beginning of a new trend, or just a correction after a monster move through 2019? Derek Halpenny dropping by the studio, MUFG Head of European Global Markets Research. He joins us here in New York. Good morning to you, Derek. Good morning, Jonathan. Well, let's start with that question, yes. shall we? It is very early days. Yes. It has been a couple of weeks, but please weigh in on that big debate right now. Uh it is early days, and I would still be leaning towards a degree of caution in how this pans out. Uh, you know, the, the scale of the move makes it understandable that we've had some degree of correction. But, you know, the US-China story, you know, even if we go back into negotiations, even if they start to kind of make progress, the, the kind of big picture uncertainty around trade is not going to go away. Secondly, we believe a no-deal Brexit is, is on the way. Uh, Boris Johnson has had a bad period of time, but ultimately we still think his big picture strategy is in play. Um, so, you know, all of that coupled with just the fact that this was more about positioning than anything, I think you'd have to see some real fundamental shifts before you could get confident about this being a longer term trend. The US 30 year yield bottomed out at the end of August. We were as low as around about 190. Citigroup, since we have bottomed out, is up around about 10% since the end of August off the mm. back of this pickup in yields. This rotation in the equity market is getting a lot of attention. But when you talk, you highlight the same themes, the same problems that took yields down to 190 on a US 30 year. And I assume from what you're saying, Derek, we've got more to come through the rest of 2019. Yeah. And, you know, look at central banks. We're going to get 
deeper negative cuts from the ECB on Thursday. We think dollar yen is heading lower, so we think Japanese strength, Japanese yen strength, is ultimately going to pressure in the BOJ to potentially cutting rates or certainly trying to implement some form of easing. Under a no-deal Brexit, we're expecting two more rate cuts from the Bank of England. So, you know, all of this, it's not a particularly positive backdrop for suggesting we've seen a turn in in yields. We've got a lot to strip out there. Let's start with the ECB and Mm. the decision on Thursday. Are you expecting what has been described as the full package, the rate cut, the tiering, the QE, the whole lot? Well, again, yes, but uh, and I, th- I think this comes into why we're seeing the correction in yields, because quite clearly there's been a very concerted effort amongst ECB council members to shift the expectations in terms of the scale of that package. And in particular, perhaps the quantitative easing is where there is some division in relation to the scale of that. So perhaps that's going to come in at the low end of the scale, uh, 20 billion per month, something like that. No indication of a change in the issuance limits uh, that would kind of curtail the the, the scale of the program. So, you know, some potential disappointment perhaps on that. But, you know, ultimately, it's not going to make a huge difference beyond the short-term momentum. Do they have a partition the United States has? The U.S. talks about trade war, manufacturing goods, disinflation, deflation, and then there's a buoyant service sector that Vice Chairman Clarida would say is solid. Great, I get that. Maybe the aggregate's solid as well. That's a debate. Is the EU structured that way as well, or is it just a somnolent recession environment? Forget about the service sector, goods, trade war, partition. Well, you know, the, the, the one positive that is still more or less evident in Europe is that outside of the external related economic indicators, there has been uh, positive data. And by that I mean, and we mentioned it earlier in terms of the the, the German labour market, but if you look at some of the domestic demand uh, elements across Europe, the labour market is still supporting domestic demand to a degree. The problem is, though, that, of course, the longer the external certainties uh, last, the greater the risk is so that that's going to start Farrell, filtering through. So then, John why can't ECB delay? I mean, Farrell's been to Frankfurt like 42 times. Yeah. He's, he's never had a lunch there shorter than three hours. Well, I struggle to find a restaurant in Frankfurt to have lunch in, but Because that's they're another all packed debate. with people having lunches <laughs> for three hours. But, John, I mean, I mean, why don't they just delay? I mean, there's no debate here about the ECB delaying. The whole debate has been hijacked by the counterfactual, not just at the ECB, exactly. but at the Federal Reserve yeah, as well. I'll go with that. The but problem like, is we have that to remember inflation. Like they have one single mandate, and they are missing it pretty badly. Well said. They, they well are, said Derek, and if they, and if they don't mandate. move, I think the fear that they have is the fear that the Fed shares is that financial conditions tighten. The idea being ultimately that if you move again, you're not going to loosen them a whole lot more given that where spreads are at the moment, given where credit is trading. But if you don't move, you could have the opposite reaction and then you've got a much bigger problem, I guess. Is that the logic? Is that the thinking, do you think, on the governing council at the moment? Uh, uh, yes, to a degree. You know, again, they're... Their, their hands are tied to an extent in terms of they have a legal mandate. And if they continue to show forecasts that are moving in the opposite direction, and of course the five-year, five-year inflation is showing uh, you know, record low levels. So you know, that's, 
that's where their yeah. hand is forced. But ultimately, you know, we, we all know we're reaching the end of the, the, the kind of scale of monetary easing that can be implemented. And as I said earlier to Tom, the pressure on a, a new course of action is going to yeah. increase considerably. And we have a new political landscape emerging uh, in Europe. And right. Merkel is leaving. We have new commission in, in the EU, uh, a new ECB president. <clears throat> There's got to be a change in direction towards fiscal stimulus on a concerted effort. And I've been so busy this morning, John. I, I, I just brought this chart up. I saw it on the Bloomberg on that great J screen uh, that they have. The plunge in Swedish inflation is jaw-dropping. I mean, plunge, there's almost no equivalent going back 10 years. Despite the fact that Riksbank has been <clears throat> pretty aggressive yeah. as well, Derek. What's interesting from a foreign exchange perspective, and I'd love your insight just to round out the conversation, is that we have seen spreads, the rate differentials between, say, the United States and Europe narrow. Mm. At the same time, we've seen a weaker euro. We've seen euro dollar break down a little bit. That's not what some people would expect just with FX 101. Look at rate differentials, look at currencies. That's not really worked for a while, has it, with a single currency? Why not, Derek? Well, I think we've, we've, we've reached extremes. And, you know, the, the markets are, I think, to a degree, acknowledging that we've reached the zero bound. And while, yeah, OK, we can get 10 basis points, 20 basis points, the, the, what's being priced in is the quantitative easing component of that. Uh, which doesn't filter through into the rate spreads to the same degree because, of course, we're at the lower bound and you're getting less traction. But it doesn't then tie with euro because of those uh, curtailments in relation to what the ECB can do. Uh, you know, but again, you, you can go back to 2017. Euro, euro rallied to 125. And it had nothing to do with spreads. Yep. So when you reach extremes you can have you can have moves and with the fed the the the, the fed in focus as well uh their reluctance to act more aggressively is is helping to keep the dollar supported this has been a wonderful conversation derek halpenny visiting in new york uh head of global research i I don't know what's your title this week head of global research in charge of premier league analysis are you over (laughs) here interviewing for nbc sports for premier leagues i'm sure he's so happy to be here and not talk about brexit if it's talk about arsenal i would i would happily do that they look good against the tots they They deserve to beat the tots have you you heard this derek that he calls spurs the tots uh, he said no but i watched it carefully were you at the game i was at the game with my two boys and, uh, I thought I saw you. He's down the, you know, we can't afford his seats. I mean, they're like, and it, 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 they're close. You know, we need to get you to a game this season. Yeah, they call a match. I when, thought it when was. There's an, when when there's the, the election, when they finally call it, we'll get you. We'll, to a we'll game. work that around mid, a Tots Arsenal. Mid, mid it's a derby. Late, I've learned it's, a der- it's not a derby. It's a derby. It's a derby. Yeah, Arsenal looked really good, and I got the idea where the experts were saying they got three guys up front that are so good that it changes everyone. They've got three good what guys up front. 30 seconds? Blow the break, Rich. We're talking English <laughs> football. <laughs> They've got three good up front. The, the defense is the problem. Can they beat Man City? Uh, to end the league. See how he gets engaged. Not. He doesn't talk about Euro Yen like this, John. <laughs> I know. He gets totally He's engaged very excited in about his gunners. Der- his gunners. I didn't know that. Der- oh, Arsenal gunners. You like I that. I get it. Right.
So we bring in George Saravelos. Let's bring in George. Serious research note. Of Deutsche Bank, yeah. Global Head of Foreign Exchange Research. Going into a really interesting week. Tomorrow, PPI data from the United States. Thursday, CPI, retail sales Friday. And an ECB rate decision, Tom, somewhere in between. Coming up on Thursday with a news conference with President Draghi. It is a really sizable week ahead. Sizable week ahead in that, George, in your research note, you've got all-in trade-weighted price-adjusted dollar. Why do you have price-adjusted dollar in your note with the news flow that's coming up? Well, as you say, Thursday is a really big day for the markets in terms of uh, the ECB. So all the focus will be on the euro. Uh, but at least as far as the U.S. administration goes, I think they're focused on broader measures and what dollar China has been doing. Uh, and on that front, obviously, the move through seven over the summer has picked up attention. What was interesting in August is that we saw a new bill submitted in the Senate that was bipartisan uh, talking about the Fed now given a mandate to weaken the dollar and to start taxing uh, capital inflows. So um, Thursday will be all about Europe, but I think as we go into uh, the end of the year and into next, the focus right. will back into the U.S. and the presidential election. And John, to your, your summary of the news events, the partial differentials, is it about euro stronger, weaker, or is it about something else stronger, weaker compared to euro? Well, the elephant in the room right now is China and the Chinese currency. I think Kit Jukes of Sokjun has done a great job of banging the drum on this, hammering home the idea that the biggest weighting in the trade-weighted FX basket at the ECB is the Chinese currency, and the second biggest weighting in the trade-weighted FX basket at the Fed is the Chinese currency. George, just how important is that currency move in the Chinese currency for the majors like the euro, like the dollar, for the Fed and the ECB? Well, it's absolutely critical. And for me, the uh, biggest event of the summer has actually been just how successful uh, the Chinese have been in managing this move through seven. So there was a large fear in the market that it could be disorderly. You could see uh, reserve depletion, large capital outflows. And none of this have materialized. The, the Chinese have been very, very successful in achieving a weaker currency, but not by more than uh, what they want. So in that sense, that's been a major positive for the market, the fact that we were able to move through that seven level um, over the summer. And I think we come in September and the market is potentially looking a bit more optimistic. And I do think that control the Chinese have over the currency makes the life right. of the ECB and the Fed uh, just a little bit easier. George Cervales, let's use euro just as one benchmark to begin a set of calls. What is your call on euro 12 months out, given the cacophony that we come out of the summer? Well, we think it will move back above 120. So we think we, wow. we will see the low uh, in, in Q4. And th there's two sides to that coin. Uh, the first one is European. Uh, the ECB at the moment, I think, is losing relevance. Uh, the meeting this week, I think, will be remembered as the last meeting where they can really deliver anything. And we're at a point for the ECB where less is more. So if they over-deliver, the risk yeah. is financial conditions tighten, bank stocks drop. And be precisely because the ECB can't deliver that much, uh, the euro, I think, will struggle uh, to weaken. And then we go on to the U.S. story, which is the other side of the coin. Um, first, of course, the Fed can cut a lot more. We think if the Fed cuts through 1%, that's going to be a big uh, turn for the dollar. Yeah. And secondly, the U.S. presidential election next year, you have all sorts of policies being flown around, which may potentially have a negative impact on confidence, on CapEx. Uh, and I think that will right. be a negative driver what, for the dollar as well. John, what does Germany do with a 120 euro? 
What does it do to their automobile industry? Well, given where autos are right now, it certainly doesn't help. George, looking at the euro and looking at the ECB, I I sense you can gauge some kind of disappointment coming on Thursday. What does disappointment look like? What does that look like this Thursday with President Draghi? Well, that's a great question, uh, John, in terms of what disappointment means, because um, I would argue that, for instance, if they over-deliver on QE, if they push bond yields even lower, while that might be delivering on the rate side, uh, it might not be so good uh, for bank stocks uh, and and equities, precisely because we're at the so-called reversal rate. So, uh, yes, I do think there may be a disappointment as far as uh, QE goes. Yields may move higher. But I don't think it will be disappointment in the conventional sense in that you might actually see the market like such a reaction. So the key metric for me is really how uh, inflation break-evens behave and how bank stocks behave. And if they end up moving higher, I wouldn't call that an ECB disappointment, even if bond yields move up. George, let's just talk about a phrase you use there, the reversal rate. It's something that's getting a whole lot more debate and discussion over the last few weeks going into this ECB rate decision. Just walk us through that concept and why it's so important for the likes of the ECB and the likes of the BOJ to consider. Well, it's absolutely critical. And the reversal rate is the level at which, beyond which, if you start easing policy, ends up having the opposite effects of what you need. So we saw that with the Bank of Japan when they eased policy a couple of uh, years ago. Uh, They went through negative. Banks had a very negative reaction. We're seeing it in Europe. Uh, The correlation between banks and yields uh, used to be a negative one. So yields lower, banks used to like that. But now that switched and yields going down, banks don't like that anymore. And I think we've reached this moment of truth for the ECB where they can't really do much. And it's something that Lagarde well, acknowledged a few days ago as well. Are we going to have an ECB or anybody else buying Apple shares or Amazon shares or Siemens shares or, you know, name the German company? I mean, do they have to get really creative here out of what the Japanese did? I think that is a possibility. And uh, Draghi may talk up these options, uh, potentially including purchasing senior bank um, senior bank bonds as well. Wow, wow. These are quasi-fiscal type uh, policies which involve greater redistribution. Yeah. However, it's quite a dangerous route to go down in that uh, once the ECB starts, for instance, buying, um, starting to push push asset values up yeah. to wealthy people, um, it creates very negative uh, uh, redistribution effects. And then one starts to question, why not do helicopter money? Why not give money to poor people directly is- rather than buying equities? And that's a fiscal debate, and I really think it's the fiscal side that will resolve the growth outlook over the next uh, couple of years, as well as where bond yields go and the euro. George Cervos, thank you so much. Global Wall Street loving this, I'm sure. We'll get that out on podcast uh, as, as well. Well, Tom, you'll be relieved to know that Congress is back in session, so all is right with the world, and the Congress certainly has plenty on its plate. To get a sense of kind of what Congress will be focusing on here uh, in September, we welcome our next guest, Nancy Ognanovich, Bloomberg Government Congressional Leadership Reporter. Uh, So, Nancy, thanks so much for joining us. So give us a sense of kind of what's on the to-do list for Congress as it uh, comes back into session here. Well, play that music from 48 Hours. The boys are back in town, and they've got just like 12 working days before they leave town again for well, a two-week break. Hard. Yeah, and so they 
have to do the main thing they always do in September, which is make sure we don't have a shutdown and pass something to cover the government spending. And they're going to be starting to move that next week. And that's the main thing, because the Senate hasn't passed a single appropriations bill. They're going to start this morning working on a defense bill, about $700 billion, and then go from there. They're all due at the White House at 4 o'clock, in the Senate Republicans, that is, to talk to Trump about this agenda. And the key thing is avoiding a shutdown. And then if they can do that and they can come back around the 15th of October, then maybe they can work on that trade deal, maybe a highway bill, a few other things. And then December is right upon them. And then that's when they do a massive omnibus and try to stuff as much as they can in that package and leave town and get ready in earnest for the election next year. So, Nancy, what are the odds that we will have a government shutdown? I mean, this continued res- resolution presumably is a uh, is something that will be on number one on the on the agenda. Did, can they get that passed? I think they can get that passed because uh, Mitch McConnell really knows how bad these things hurt his party when they're facing an election. And I think that's one of the reasons or one of the messages that they'll deliver to the president today, that the 35-day shutdown that they had last year was very, very bad for the party. But people can forget these things, but not when they're only a year away from the presidential election. And so I think there'll be a lot of pressure. And although Tom doesn't really like some of these percentages and so on, I'd say right now we're looking at a 30% chance of a shutdown. But that could grow depending on Trump. Yeah, Nancy, Nancy, it's called President Trump, Nancy. Come on, you sound like you've been on Capitol Hill for 45 years. Nancy, let's cut to the chase of what matters. Are the Redskins past their sell-by date in Washington? I mean, they used to sell out. Al Hunt would board me. I'd not off asleep. Al Hunt would be beating me up on how important the Redskins are. Is Congress still in love with the Redskins? I, I can't believe that you brought up sports, actually. You know, I was looking at their standings today, the Redskins. It's not so good. Baltimore, the Ravens, yeah, they're the ones that have the, you know, the momentum right now. What's the buzz on the Hill? I, I mean, I mean, they lose to the Eagles. They get trounced. Cerulli had to be medicated. They're playing the Cowboys this week. But this used to be like, you know, in my first days in Washington for Bloomberg, the, the whole town is fixated by the Redskins. Is it done? Oh, you're absolutely right, right? That Joe Theismann, all of that, it yeah. was huge. Everybody wanted to go to the Redskins games. Nobody even talks right. about them these days. Are they? I mean, you're the only one that would know this. Nancy Ignatovich, are, are, are they going to get an appropriations bill done to build them a new stadium? Oh, no. <laughs> Nobody seems to get anything built anymore. Look at the FBI. The FBI is in that ancient, brutalist building on yeah. Pennsylvania Avenue for as long as you, you can imagine now. And that was J. Edgar Hoover's fault. Nancy Ignatovich, thank you so much for the architectural uh, lesson. Nancy Ignatovich, really a jewel for us uh, in Washington. She has encyclopedic knowledge. Yeah, of the past. Yeah, and the you know have that insider knowledge, the sources is just extraordinary. It brings you the, the color that you don't get uh, most other places. This is a joy. 
and we do this with Scott Galloway, uh, author of The Four, and as uh, Paul Sweeney mentioned, just a terrific Twitter follow for any of you interested in this dovetail of our modern capitalism with all the things that we do and buy and technology in that. We're thrilled that Scott Galloway can continue with us from New York University. Scott, Douglas Cass is an investor. He's visible, he's long, he's short, he trades, he's a pinata for the doom and gloom crew, et cetera, et cetera. He is not only long Amazon, but here's a guy that's taken, heaven forbid, a long-term view five years, six years, seven year view, and Doug Cass puts a big dollar amount on the share out the road. Can you extrapolate forward any of this technology? Can you extrapolate forward the future of the four? Uh, sure. So if, if I was going to write a sequel, it'd be called The One. And people often ask me what would be the first trillion dollar company. And I would respond that I don't know, but the first two trillion dollar company will be Amazon. We've never had a company firing on 12,000 cylinders the way we have it firing on Amazon. I believe the most valuable company in the world in 2022 or 23 will be AWS, which will be spun by Jeff Bezos prophylactically to stave off regulation, in my view. So what will be the most valuable company in the world? AWS, and by virtue of that, Amazon. It's hard to imagine anyone threatening Amazon right now. So, Scott, I'm glad you brought up kind of, you know, spinning off AWS to fend up, potentially fend off regulators. That's something new, i.e. regulatory oversight by U.S. Congress, U.S. regulators of big tech. Historically, the U.S. has taken a generally a light touch to Silicon Valley. Do you think that's fundamentally changing? And if so, is that a real risk for big tech? Oh, it's absolutely changing. Just yesterday, 48 states attorney generals, basically everyone but Puerto Rico and California, announced that they were going to pursue antitrust against Google. So the breakup of big tech has, in fact, begun. What the markets, I think, get wrong, Paul, is that these companies will be worth more broken up. If you look at all the um, hmm. companies post-breakup, whether it was AT&T or the eBay spin from, uh, excuse me, the PayPal spin from eBay, the companies tend to unlock tremendous value. So yes, the breakup of big tech has begun, and also it will be good for shareholders. Okay, well, you're right at Tarbell. Do you get out front? I mean, if you're going to break up big tech and you 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 believe that, Professor Galloway, what is there? You mentioned, you know, the cloud's going to be spun off of Amazon. What does Apple do on the breakup of big tech? I mean, do they really spin this stuff off? You know, it's, that's the correct question, Tom. I think Apple is probably the one that doesn't get broken up, but gets regulated. I think their app store is somewhat predatory in terms of their pricing, where you have a company like Spotify that has a superior service, but its growth is hamstrung by Apple, who is now growing their music offering faster with an inferior service because they own, they have a billion pre-installed devices. I don't think Apple gets broken up because Elegant Antitrust not only oxygenates the marketplace with more competitors, but it doesn't hamstring the company of breaking up. And it would be difficult to break up Apple because the question is who gets domain over the core asset, which is the brand. So I think Apple is probably the one that survives the breakup, if you will. So, Professor, one of the names that is really interesting right now is AT&T. I mean, you talk about the convergence of telecommunications, media, telecom. That's AT&T with the acquisition of DirecTV and then Time Warner. Now we've got an activist investor in there saying, wait a minute, I don't think you guys are going down the right road here. What do you make of kind of the strategy uh, uh, that AT&T is pursuing? 
I think it makes sense on a whiteboard, but it doesn't look to be playing out. As a consumer, and I'm a consumer with AT&T, I don't see how they're leveraging the content of Time Warner. And also just any time that Jeff Bukas or Rupert Murdoch, who I think are kind of two of the brighter blue flame thinkers, sell assets at the same time, it means you don't want to be long those assets. And just as Verizon wrote down its purchase of Yahoo, I think you're probably going to see over time AT&T write down the assets of Time Warner, not because they're not great assets. I just think they overpaid for them. And it's not entirely clear from a consumer standpoint what benefit a subscriber to their data their data and sell plans is getting from the same company owning HBO right now. And that I guess that's the AT&T story is kind of what we're uh, emblematic of what we're seeing in the media space, which is this pivot towards streaming, getting a direct relationship with your consumer made so famous by Netflix. We saw the Walt Disney Company spend $70 okay, but, billion but wait, dollars wait, wait, with wait, Rupert. Wait. Some, somebody on Third Avenue selling cell phones <laughs> is going to tell Scott Galloway the creative energy needed to do streaming? Exactly. I don't think so. But uh, so, Professor, what do you think about kind of let's like the, the Walt Disney Company making this major pivot towards streaming is this something big media can do successfully or is kind of the horse kind of left the barn already there are really only two companies that have that have landed effective counter blows against big tech the first is walmart that has shown that it still has some mojo and has landed counter punches against amazon specifically with with uh, curbside pickup and grocery and the second paul to your point is disney and the set of assets that Disney has with um, Star Wars, with Hulu, with Pixar, with kids content, with the parks, even with their cruise ships, yeah. I think Disney Disney's in a position to offer a grand bargain that does, in fact, rival Netflix. So you're, And you also have a leader that has the credibility to tell its board, hold on, everyone, we're taking profits down. Because when we say a platform or streaming, that's Latin for yeah. massive investment. Scott, I got about eight more questions. We're going to do one, and I'll stay here on what all our listeners are going to live. Paul Sweeney says in November and into next year. What do you see as the outcome of streaming? Are we going to have three streaming sources, or are we going to see a price war where we enjoy five or six streaming sources? What's Galloway's outcome of what happens in my living room? Well, unfortunately, it'll probably be two or three big players, and there'll be several niche players. But the unfortunate thing about tech and where the DOJ and FTC need to step in is that across all markets or almost all major markets, we're seeing a consolidation of influence and power where there's only two or three players. And that's bad. That's bad for the economy. I would argue the government and the regulatory agencies have become a co-conspirator and not a countervailing force to private power that we need to see more affirmative DOJ and FTC action to ensure the consumers still have yeah. choice and the marketplace gets oxygenated. Scott Galloway, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated on We Company and a host of other issues, including Amazon and the View Ford. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.